0: Good to be with you. Uh, We're going to start out with a really serious question this morning as we jump into Galatians 5, and that question is, who likes haunted houses? Anybody? I see a couple. No, just me. Okay, a few of you. Awesome. Great. I thought I was going to be alone in this, and it was going to get even weirder than that question. Um, Yeah, I love haunted houses. Uh, I know this is kind of a weird way to start, but Stick with me, it makes sense. One of my favorites is in Ohio, when I went to school there, college with Laura, there was this amazing, it was called Haunted Woods. And uh, most haunted houses, if you don't know, I'll give you a little lesson here, they, they might last like 10 or 15 minutes. This thing lasted for like 50 minutes. And it was amazing. And it was incredibly scary. Now, here's the deal. Um, one time, when we were going through this as a group, and Laura, I think, was even with me, uh, asked her about haunted houses. She does not feel the same. But uh, there was this part where you're going through the woods... And at any good haunted house, you've got chainsaws. And so these guys come out with chainsaws. Now, here's what happened. People screamed and they yelled and and the rest of our group just ran forward and and passed everybody. Here's what happened to me. Um, I just started screaming at the top of my lungs. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I just was running in a circle. And so these guys chased me for a while, probably a full minute and then, no joke, here's what happened. They just put down their chainsaws, and a guy just lifted his mask. He's like, dude, just go ahead with your, with your group. And, uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. So why do I tell this? Not just to sound um, ridiculous this morning, but here's the deal. Was I, was I safe? Did I know I was safe at this, at this haunted house, these haunted woods? Absolutely. I knew that I was safe. That was my, that was my truest reality. I knew that nothing really was going to happen to me. I knew that I wasn't really in danger. But was I living like it? Was I acting like it? Absolutely not. I was running around and screaming and going crazy. See, there's a big difference between actually knowing your reality that you're in and living in your reality. See, for instance, this morning, just because something, basically just because something is true doesn't mean that you're living in it, that you're um, pressing into it. So you can be an adult this morning, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily act like it, right? Right? You can have friends and family who love you and accept you just the way you are, but that doesn't mean that you always believe it. I could tell you that your past absolutely doesn't define you, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to go back there from time to time and try to make that your reality or believe that it might be your reality. I could tell you that God made you without errors, that he knows how he made you, how he intended to make you, and that you're really good the way you are in the sense of he didn't make a mistake with you, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to doubt that. That you're not going to think that maybe you need to be more, do more, have more, all of those things. And for all of those things, reality, whether we live into it or whether we accept a different reality, which there are a lot of them coming at us, it has consequences. Some of those are really small, and some of those are really big. And what we've been seeing through the book of Galatians, we're now in chapter 5, is that Paul is addressing a church and a people who have accepted a new reality, their life in Christ, But now are not living in it. Much like me at this uh, haunted woods, they're running scared. They're searching for new safety, but not the safety that they've known. And this has massive consequences. It's not small. It's huge. It has everything to do with their life. It has everything to do with their eternity. It has everything to do with their soul. It has everything to do with who God has made them to be and actually living in this. And as we get to chapter 5, Paul, really, in the book of Galatians, this this passage that we're looking at, there's no stronger words. Paul is not parsing words here. He comes straight at the church, straight at the people who he loves and cares about, but he has really hard things to say because he, he really does care so much. And he's saying, hey, here's what's up. I'm really scared for you because you've accepted something that is not actually true about you, and it has consequences. And I think it has a lot to show us today and challenge us today in how we live and what we accept and what we actually live into. So we're going to be in chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to have it on the screen right behind me as well. And as I said, Paul is really breaking into a section here clearly devoted to freedom. You heard uh, part of the passage read just a few minutes ago. And so we're going to jump right in and we're going to see what Paul has to say here to the church and what God has to say to us. Starts off verse 1. What a powerful verse. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. So hear this. Let me just read it one more time, this first part. Can't really miss this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The indicative is followed by the imperative. And this is actually a really big deal. Because if you don't understand this and you don't get this right, you can end up even where the Galatians have ended up trying to work for God's approval. What does this mean? Well, it says, stand firm then. So what we must do, which is the imperative, is always based upon what God has already done, which is the indicative. Another way to say it is this. What God has done gives us the opportunity and the power to do what we must do. Think about a prisoner. Think about someone that's been in prison, and they have no idea. They're in this cell and they have no idea that there's been things that are going on outside, outside of this cell to free them. And they really don't have anything to do with it. They haven't been doing work to free themselves. They're sitting in this cell and all of a sudden there's work going on outside. And the guard comes and he says, you're, you're free to go. You're free to go. You've been pardoned. Your you're, you're term has been vacated. And so he takes the prisoner and he walks him outside of the prison walls... And he says, yeah, you're free to go. Now here's the deal. That prisoner's free, and that's his reality. But now he needs to live into that. It would be ridiculous if he was standing outside the prison walls and he just stayed there. And he didn't move, and he didn't go anywhere. He didn't know what to do, and and so he just remained. No, he's free. What Paul's getting at here is, hey, don't forget, Christ has set you free, so live free. This is your greatest reality, and you're not living like it. Maybe you've forgotten what he's done for you, but this is is what he's done. He set you free, so stand therefore. And he says, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in Paul's day, in Oxen, they would be hooked up to literally a yoke, this thing that would go around their neck, and they would pull incredibly heavy loads up hills, and they would be prodded all the way with sharp sticks so that they would keep going, so that they could make it up the hill. And what Paul's saying is that essentially what you guys are doing is you are taking what Christ has done. What Christ has done is he came and he saw us when we had the yoke around our neck and he realized that there was absolutely no way that we could carry the load of our sin up the hill, that we could make it, that we could measure up, that we could make our relationship with with God right again. And so Christ came along and what he did is he took the yoke off of our neck and he put it on his own neck because he's the only one sufficient to actually take that load on himself, to carry that burden. And what Paul's saying is, hey, <laughs> you're, you're diminishing what Christ has already done, and you're taking back on a weight that you can't handle. Why are you doing that? If Christ has already taken this yoke that's weight on you, and, and he's taken that on himself, why would you want that back? This is our truest reality. That's what Paul's saying, that you're free. But he makes this incredibly strong point throughout this whole book that this only comes through Christ. It only comes through Christ. It only comes through Christ when we accept that He is righteous, that His grace alone can remove that yoke from around our neck, and that He's placed the yoke around His neck. And when we don't accept this, there are serious consequences, and that's what Paul's getting at here. In verse 2, he says, look, so he said, listen, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, so this is actually the first mention of circumcision outrightly in this book. Here was the issue. It's legalism. It's what we've been talking about, the idea that they were being convinced by false teachers that Christ alone wasn't enough, faith alone wasn't enough. You needed to supplement. And the way that you're going to supplement is by Gentiles, you're going to become Jewish. And how do you do that? You're going to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, "Uh uh-uh. I say to you that if you accept this, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man, not just a few, not just the really bad ones, every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You can't get much stronger than this. What Paul's saying is, hey, let me me show you what the reality is when you put yourself under the yoke of your own sin. Here it is. Here are the consequences. There's four of them that he lists out here. That first one, if you don't trust Christ, Christ is of no value to you. The second one, you will have to keep every rule without exception, which is absolutely impossible. He's saying, hey, you're going to have to be obligated to the entire law, not just part of it. You're going to have to do everything perfectly perfectly. That's, how, that's, that's what you're going to have to abide by. And he says this, third, you forfeit your relationship with Christ, and you're going to end up going it alone. And then the fourth, you'll be rejecting the greatest gift God offers and accepting God's wrath. This reality that sin separates us from God, that you need Christ today. There's no just, well, I hope I'm good enough. You won't be. There's no, well, I think I've done enough good and it probably outweighs the bad. It doesn't matter. If there's one speck of bad on there, guess what? You're not righteous. And the consequences is what Paul's pointing out is that you don't have grace, which is a pretty big consequence because that means you will be eternally separated from God and you'll be under God's wrath for eternity. And this is no small thing. This is something we don't like to talk about. This is something we like to shy away from. This is something as a culture. We've taken this book And we've mangled it, and we've taken out those passages because we would rather not think about those things, and we'd rather not offend anybody. But in doing so, we are condemning people. The whole idea that uh, the whole idea that well, you know, in the end, you know, God, God just God just forgives everyone. Well, then, man, that just doesn't make a lot of sense based on what this book says then why does it talk about hell? Why does it talk about eternal separation? Why does it talk about Christ needing to come and atone? Why does it talk about penal substitution? Why does it talk about all these things? Because these things are true, and this is what God says. And so always be careful of what man says that doesn't match up with what God says. Christ's wrath is real, but he's made a way. He says this. I don't know if you noticed this last verse. It kind of freaks us out. We don't really like it, especially not in our um, Reformed beliefs. But he says this. If you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified from the law, you have fallen away from grace. Literally, he's saying you've fallen out of grace. Now, we don't like this because we're like, whoa, 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 eternal security. Where's my eternal security stamp? Let me pull this out. You're like, what about that? Because this uh, sounds like Paul's saying that maybe you can lose something here. Maybe you can lose your salvation. Now, instead of jumping immediately to eternal security, which is great theological belief, doctrine, Instead of jumping there, I want, I want us to sit with this for just a minute, though, because we should sit with this for the, with a minute. We need to think about the consequence of not trusting in Christ. That's what Paul wants the Galatians to think about. That's why he's saying something so strong as this. You need to understand the implications if you do not put your trust in Christ. It's no small thing. This means that your trust is going to have to be in yourself or in someone else. And you're trusting them to essentially measure up, or you're trusting yourself to measure up. Now, what's Paul saying here? This, this idea, obviously, um, of falling out of grace is a big thing. Now, it's not the same as falling into sin, which we need to understand, because what happens if you fall into sin? Well, if you fall into sin, you actually fall into grace. That's why we have grace. So when we sin, when we, when we do wrong, that Christ is there as our righteousness No, this is the idea of apostasy. This is the idea of abandoning the truth of the gospel. This is the idea of saying, Christ, you're no longer sufficient, and I'm going to place my trust in something else. And Paul's saying, if you do that, if you do that, really that points to the proof that you were never really placing your trust in Christ in the first place. Because if you do, as Paul gets to even in the next verse, he has faith that God will keep you. And it's important to look at here that Paul uses the word if. So he's painting a picture of reality, and he's saying if. Anyone who does this, if you go this route, here's the consequences. And this is offensive, and it would have definitely shaken the Galatians up. If anyone goes under the law, they will lack grace. Trusting in Christ. Trusting in Christ is the only way to find grace. And so Paul lays out these negative consequences, but here's what he says next, which is really good and really positive. He says, "For through the spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor, circ- nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love." So the life of faith is life by the spirit, and this is this is so huge that if you're a Christian today that you have the Holy Spirit with you, this is really God with us going with us, leading us, that by the Spirit we are marked as sons and daughters of God, that by the Spirit we are led, that by the Spirit we're reminded of who we are, that through the gospel we receive the Spirit, we're able to live in the Spirit, that we're no longer underneath wrath, that we, through the Spirit, get to grow in the character and image of God, to be more like Christ, that ultimately... Through the Spirit, through what Jesus has done, we're freed from the yoke of the law. It allows us to wait in joyful expectation. That's what it says here. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, the expectation of Christ that He's good enough, that He's coming again. And Paul makes it clear the Spirit is only given to those who trust in the finished work of Christ. That our efforts don't count for anything when it comes to our salvation. Not at all. Not at all. And this is why it's so important, again, to remember that anything that we do, any good effort, is motivated by grace, not for grace. Everything that we do, anything that's good, needs to be motivated by grace that we already have, our standing that we already have, not for it, not to try to earn it. That's the strong point that Paul's making here. That our efforts don't count, but what does? It says faith working through love. This is the first mention of, of love really outright in this book as well, and it's going to carry the rest of the way in the next chapter as well, in the rest of fifteen and in, in, or in rest of 5 and in 6. And this is big, that it's not just faith, but faith working through love. And it's important that we get this right too, because it's not uh, faith must work through love. It's this idea that, you know, Herod, who was a king in the Bible, he had faith that John the Baptist was a prophet, but what did he do? Well, he had, he had John the Baptist's head taken off. And so it wasn't faith working through love. And the idea here is that the truest faith, a real faith in Christ, is always going to work through love, real faith, saving faith, and it will produce love, which we'll see in a minute. And so this is something that we constantly need to keep at check in our own life. Are we really trusting in Christ? Or are we living in an alternate reality? We're replacing our trust in something else. In verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul's saying, hey, who, who hindered you? This is actually a military term. It means that if like a, um, um, an army... If a group is going one way along a road, the idea is that someone comes along and they break up the road so you can't pass. And he's saying, who came along? As you, you were you were heading in the right direction. You were doing so well in your faith. Who came along and broke up the road and has stopped you in your tracks, has put you on an alternate path? Who's done this? And he makes it really clear. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't come and tell you, hey, I did give my life for you, but I also, I need you to do a little too. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Somebody else came along. And somebody else is going to face the consequences of doing this. They're going to be under the penalty. Obviously, there was some leader, probably in this group of false teachers, that Paul's kind of pointing out here, he's focusing on. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, there's going to be punishment there. Because they're leading you astray. They're taking you away from the truth. He says a little leaven um, leavens the whole lump. It's kind of like the idea of, you know, a bad apple spoils the whole barrel. saying all it takes is a little bit. It doesn't take a lot. When it comes to legalism, which is a huge piece of this passage, right, their legalism in their day was that they needed to be circumcised, that that would make them right by becoming Jewish, that this was their effort, this was their thing that they were going to add to what Christ had done. In our day, it's the same. It doesn't take much. It doesn't doesn't take much at all for something to come in, to be sprinkled into our lives, and to really stop us in our tracks. To feed this lie that, okay, yeah, Christ is great. What he's done for me is great, but maybe I need to do something too. Maybe someone comes and they speak into your life, and they convince you that you need to do a little bit more, that you need to be a little bit more, that you need to learn a little bit more. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's something that pops into your mind and it starts to convince you that maybe you're not good. Maybe, you're, maybe you haven't been made right. Maybe you don't believe quite enough. Maybe you need to believe more. What, what is it? Paul makes it clear, hate: a little, and it spreads like wildfire. It's dangerous, and it consumes. It consumes. Now, I love that Paul does say this. And this is great for us. This is good news. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Now, Paul doesn't say this. He doesn't say, hey, I have confidence in you that you're going to get your act right. I have confidence in you that you're going to realize, all right, this isn't true. We need, get, we need to get back on the right path. No, no, no. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that he's going he's to keep you. I have confidence that God being able to give himself for you is also going to be the one that sustains you. He's also going to be the one through the Holy Spirit that reminds you of what's true and what's not true. What I think about you, what I don't think about you, that I've approved you, that you don't need to keep working. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. And that's really where our confidence is found. You see, Paul says even this, hey, the, uh, brothers, if... Uh, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Paul's just saying, yo, I'm, I'm having a tough time with this because I'm not preaching circumcision. I'm not preaching works. I know that that would appease a lot of people. No, I'm preaching the gospel, which is pretty offensive. And that's why he talks about the offense of the cross here. He says in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What is this offense of the cross that Paul is talking about? Really, the offense of the cross is this. It makes us look in the mirror at who we really are, it makes us look in the mirror and it makes us come to the realization that we need help. The cross makes us look at ourselves in an honest way and say, yeah, I can't rescue myself. Yeah, I don't measure up. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I need, to be, I need to be rescued. And it's offensive. And what's it offensive to? It's offensive to our pride. It's offensive to our pride because we would like to think that we have more control than we have. We would like to think that we can kind of help ourselves out. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our identity, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to the atonement, the cross comes right at us and says, no, that's that's the only way. That's the only way that you're going to experience forgiveness. That's the only way that you're going to be made right with God. It offends all of us. But at the same time, it shows us this great reality of grace that's offered to us. Now, Paul says something next that is um, it's interesting, and it's pretty wild. Um, he says this. He's mad. He's angry. Very angry. So let's read verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Um, it's an interesting verse in the Bible. I feel like I'm about to have a conversation with a teenager about the birds and the bees. Um, it's, it's strange. So Paul is so angry, and you can't miss this here, he's so angry because those who he counted as children in the faith were being led astray. And there's nothing more dangerous than that. There's nothing more dangerous in your life than something that would convince you that Christ isn't enough. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, something has been convincing you that you don't need it. And that's the biggest danger right now in your life. Even as believers, we can be led astray by all sorts of things that come in and try to convince us that Christ isn't completely sufficient. Now, this whole issue of circumcision here, these false teachers were putting on a show, it was a spectacle, it was ridiculous, in Jerusalem that had come down to Galatia and they were telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, hey, why stop with that? Let's go ahead and just do full castration. And so you're like, whoa. But here's even why he says that. If you don't understand this in context, it's really weird. And you're just like, oh, man, Paul's Paul's getting wild here. But what Paul's pointing to is what was already happening in Galatia. You see, there were pagan temples set up around Galatia. And this was one of their main practices. That in these pagan temples, they would practice castration. And, and these pagan temples, they didn't confess to believe in Christ at all. Now with the false teachers, they're like, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need this too. And Paul's saying, hey, why don't they just go ahead and do that? Because really these false teachers, they're pagans, just like all of those around you in these temples that are practicing this. So I wish they would just go ahead and just go all the way with it. In fact, if you think that circumcision makes you righteous, man, you can get even more righteous, right? By just going a step further. These are harsh words, but these are coming from a good place. It's from a carrying place. Do you remember what Jesus said in his ministry to those who would lead children astray, which we are, the children of God? Let me just remind you here, it's, it's, it's not a lot lighter than what Paul says. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 18. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and then he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is saying there's, there's no greater danger than being led away from me. In your life, have you examined the things in your life that lead you away from Christ, because there are probably several, the things in your life that come knocking on your door every day and try to convince you that maybe, maybe, maybe God doesn't really love you as much as, as he says he does. You know, maybe, maybe you just don't have enough faith. Mm, maybe, you do, maybe you do need to work more because uh, I'm not sure Christ is really cool with, cool with you the way you are. There are all sorts of things, and there's no greater danger. So Paul, he uses some strong language, but he's righteously angry. As one writer says, Morris, he says this, "This was a dreadful thing to wish." But then again, the teaching of these false teachers was a dreadful thing to inflict on young Christians. We need to guard our hearts. Paul says in 13, For you were called to freedom. So let me remind you again, Christians, you were called to freedom, not to be enslaved. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for through love, serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is the only person that I can imagine saying, I wish they would emasculate themselves in one verse, and two verses later saying, love your neighbor. But he gets to the heart of this. Freedom produces love. Freedom produces love. But the law produces something very different. Legalism produces something very different. But there was this false idea that Paul points out first. He says, hey, don't use your freedom as an opportunity just to to fulfill your own selfish desires. And we can get in that place where we do that, and we really need to examine our heart, kind of this idea of, okay, I've got grace, so now I can do whatever I want. Like, grace is the platform that I get to dive off of into my own flesh. Paul's like, hey, that's not it. That's not why Christ died. He died to set you free from sin, not to set you free so you could just go crazy and sin as much as you want. And here's why you need to check your heart on this. If someone around you, close to you, another brother or sister in the faith, See something in your life and they try to speak in because they really care about you, and you're quick to pull out this legalism card? Nope, freedom in Christ. Right? Freedom in Christ. And every time that they try to say something because they care about you and they see maybe you're heading in some dangerous ways, and they try to speak in and say, Hey, I don't know that this is the wisest, you just pull out that card and you're like, No, freedom in Christ. Who are you to speak into my life? And you're unwilling to listen and you're unwilling to hear, and in fact it goes further than that, you're unwilling to even invite others into your life for accountability, there's a good chance that maybe you are using and abusing grace as this kind of safety net to just do whatever you want. And that's not going to grow you to be more like Christ. In fact, that makes a mockery of the cross and the cost that Christ went to for you. And so if you find yourself there, Paul's saying, hey, You need to understand what grace is for. It sets you free from sin. If grace is applied correctly, it produces love for one another. That's clear here. But what prevents it? And it's this. We're going to look at this for a minute. Legalism. Legalism. A big word that we hear popped around the church a lot. Legalism. What is it? Legalism is anything that puts in question the sufficiency of Christ. This is how I I grew up personally. I grew up with a very legalistic heart and a very legalistic mindset. I accepted Christ at a really young age, at the age of 7, but from there on out, I bought into some false ideas that I needed to work to keep that up. I cannot even tell you how many times I prayed at night in my bed as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old that Christ would save me. Would you please save me? Would you please give me enough faith so that you might save me? I did this today, Jesus, and I'm not sure that I'm really saved. I'm not sure about this. I need to do more and more and more. And it was a prison. When Paul says that the law is enslaving, when he talks about legalism as being enslaving, it absolutely is. It keeps you in a mental prison. It keeps your heart tied up. And I hated that. And it took my mind completely off of the love of Christ. I didn't see Christ as loving. I saw God as as really a judge. And I was just trying to make sure that he didn't whack me. I didn't even like the Jesus that I had built up in my mind and my heart. And, and I highly doubt that those around me liked him because I was scared of him. That's what legalism does. You quickly stop seeing Christ as a savior. And instead, you see him as more of, as a really harsh, really aggressive judge. Here's what legalism can produce. This comes from what Paul says about devouring one another, consumed by one another. Legalism can produce people who are judgmental. That we come and we judge others. That we judge the church. That we try to discern who's a Christian and who's not. Who's in and who's not. Who's living right and who's not. That we kind of put on this judge hat. That we look around in a room like this and we're looking around and we're not thinking that I want the best for this person beside me. We're wondering if we're better than they are beside me. We're wondering if we've done more. we have wondering what they've done. We're wondering if they're good. We question this other person's motives over here, and we're constantly judging them because they don't look the way that I look. They don't say the things that I say. They don't do what I would do. And we try to puff ourselves up and say, well, at least I'm not like them, and at least I'm not like them. And it creates this judgmental spirit within us. Well, we're not really for one another, and we really don't have time to love one another, but we do have time to judge one another. This is one thing legalism produces. It doesn't produce it just in here, but it also can produce it outside the church, especially in a city like ours, where we can sit in here and we can say, well, at least I'm a part of this church, and at least I'm a part of the right belief, right? I'm reformed. At least I'm on the right side of this. Instead, we look at the other churches that line Green Lake, and we say, man, at least I'm not part of that. (laughs) At least I don't believe in that. Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you this. There are some fundamental beliefs that we that we believe that are, that are first hills, that are first hills to die on, that, that Christ is the only way to salvation. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the infallibility of this Bible. We believe in things that are foundational to our belief in Christ. But then we're going to have other things that we might not necessarily agree with with the Lutheran or the Methodist church down the street. But check this out if they believe in these foundational things, that Christ is the only way of salvation, that his grace is sufficient in the Trinity, in the word of God, guess what we should be doing? Not judging that other church and making jokes about that other church, but cheering that church on so that the gospel would go forward through our city, in our city. We shouldn't be judging the other churches around us. How, how prideful of us I'd rather cheer on the church down the street if they're preaching that Christ is sufficient. Even if I don't agree on a lot of the secondary things, man, I can get stoked that somebody might meet Jesus in that church. But legalism can keep us from that. Legalism also sets a bar of what it means to be a good Christian, that I I serve regularly, that I tithe 10%, that I go to a life group, that I make it there every week or at least three out of the four weeks of the month, that I use the right language, that I have good kids, that they do the right things, that they say the right things, that they go to the right school, that we do the prayers before every meal and before we go to bed at night, and I read 20 minutes of the Bible a day. It can produce selfish behavior. So we view the church as a place to consume, to cater to our needs, a place for more and more people to offer us supplemental things that we don't think about the others around us. First, we think about, am I getting what, am I, getting what I need first and foremost? Is this a, am I getting everything that I need here? Or, or, or do I need to go find it somewhere else? Instead of thinking, what do I have to offer these people? How can I lay my life down for them? Because Christ laid his life down for me. And so we can become consumers and I think one of the biggest modern-day legalisms that we face, and my guess would be a lot of us face it in here, is this. I know I face this because we do this in the church a lot. We say, we do this, you've probably heard this, you know, that you, need to, that you need to place your faith in Christ, that you need to say this prayer, and you need to invite Christ into your life, and these are not bad things, but here's, here's the danger of sometimes saying these things without understanding how this really works is that one of the biggest, biggest modern-day legalisms that we face as Christians is this, is that we are saved because of our faith, attaining a certain level of faith. So I'm saved by the level of faith that I have. I had this much faith in Christ, and so I came to him, and then he saved me. Now what we forget is that before you ever came to Christ, God called you, that the Holy Spirit removed blinders from your eyes and from your heart, and that He prepared you. The first thing in this is not that you had enough faith and so Christ saved you, but we believe this a lot of times, and so what do we do? We keep trying to maintain this level of faith, and we often tie it to emotions, and so if I can't maintain this level of faith, or if I have an off day, or if I'm If I'm having a tough one, man, then then I start to question everything about what I believe, and I start to question my standing before God. And so it's incredibly important that we understand that it's not about the level of your faith that you are approved and made right before God. I mean, think about this. I was saved at seven years old, and now I'm 33. And if you ask that seven-year-old, can you tell me about the atonement? Can you tell me about penal substitution? Can you explain the Trinity to me? As a seven-year-old, I would have just looked at you probably with a blank face. What? But as a seven-year-old, I I believed that Jesus gave his life for me. I believed that I needed him as a Savior. I knew that I had done wrong things, and I accepted him into my life. Now, as a 33-year-old, I could explain those things to you. And so the question would be, which one's really safe in, in Christ? And the answer would be both. Not one more than the other. Now, in Christ, when he accepts us through the Holy Spirit... We have the opportunity to grow in our faith. And so let me just ask this. Is using judgment, discernment, wanting to grow, serving, giving, making time for others, are these bad things? And the answer is no. This is why legalism is so tricky and it's sometimes tough to recognize. Because it's often over concerns that are good. But legalism comes when it takes things to the next level and calls into question the sufficiency of Christ and the adequacy of the Spirit to guide and grow us. Not only does it rob us of living in freedom, as Paul's been talking about here, it prevents us from living out of the freedom, which is always manifested in what, does Paul say? Loving others, loving your neighbor. In fact, it'll lead us to harm one another and to harm ourselves. Jesus had more liberty than anyone else. He had more freedom than anyone who walked the earth. And how did he use it? To serve himself? To consume? No, he used it to love us. He didn't use it to get his way, and in fact, he used it the quite opposite. He saw that we were struggling up that hill with the weight of our sin. And in our struggle, he came and he took that yoke off of our neck and he placed it on himself. And he carried that sin all the way up the hill and he carried it to the cross. He carried it to the cross and he laid it down. He laid it down by laying down his life. He shows the ultimate reality of freedom. And you would say, was he really free? He was absolutely free. Even in carrying the weight of our sin, Christ had freedom in knowing that he was doing the Father's will. He had freedom in knowing the hope that was set before him. And so he carried that weight on our behalf. He carried that yoke. And he gives us the opportunity to trust in him with that. And that's how we're free. And so now as children, we have the opportunity to live this reality out. Those who are fully loved, those who are fully free, we get to put our faith to work. We get to love one another. And can you picture what a, church would, what a church would look like if we really did this? If we stopped trying to compete with each other, if we stopped trying to earn more from God, if we really believed that we were free by what Christ has done and what Christ has done alone, if we really relied on the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, that we knew that we were marked as children, that we didn't need to do more to be approved or measure up, that 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 wasn't the issue, but we knew that we were free. And so out of that freedom, we live a life that reflects Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because we would be serving one another in such tangible ways inside the body, and we would have hearts that beat for those that are outside the body, our neighbors, to love them and serve them, because our tanks would be completely full. This is what freedom means. That you've been filled up to such a point that you don't have to go searching for more and more and more. Instead, you get to go around and you get to help fill others up. You get to go lay down your life to serve others. That you're no longer in the bondage and slavery of sin, but now you get to be, and I know this sounds weird, it's kind of paradoxical, but now you're a slave to one another out of love. That's what grace produces. And it's a beautiful thing. But it's so easy for us to go back under legalism. And we have to constantly be reminded of what Christ has done for us, and that's what Paul's doing here, and that's what we need today. And so I would just leave us with this, as Paul has said here, is that freedom in Christ is freedom to love. Freedom in Christ is freedom to love. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, if you're trusting in Him with your life, as we get ready for communion and we respond, would you think about the things that come into your life, these legalistic ideas Concepts that try to take away from the sufficiency of Christ. And would you lay those down this morning and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that you're good enough. It's not about the level of my faith, it's about the object of my faith, and that's you, Christ. And I'm trusting that you're good enough and you're sufficient. And out of that, would you allow me to love you and love others? And if you don't have a relationship with Christ, that's what he offers you. He offers you this relationship, no strings attached. He already has done the work. He's already taken your sin up the hill. And he offers you this through his blood, through his sacrifice, out of love. And he gives you the opportunity to live into that, to lay down your sin, to receive his life, to live in freedom.